0: If you have your Bibles uh, with you, take them and turn to the book of 1 John. And as you're turning there, just let me draw to your attention something that you may want to prepare for for January 1st, 2023. One of the things we've talked about together as a uh, team is uh, how can we encourage the reading of God's Word? We know many of you are reading the Word of the Lord and we're thankful for that, but some of you maybe don't have a habit or a plan or a pattern of doing that. And so we put together a reading plan that we call 10 by 5 by 5. It's pretty simple. It's uh, 10 minutes a day. And so we'll read through the whole New Testament and then the Old Testament from Genesis to the end of 2 Samuel in a year. It's five days a week. And that's specifically for a reason, because if you are followers of a plan, sometimes you know the guilt that you can feel if you get behind on your plan. And uh, so by doing five days a week, that allows you two days a week to pat yourself on the back and say, hey, I did it. Or it allows you two days to catch up. And uh, so that's why it's uh, only five days a week. And then uh, the other five is five questions. One of the things about reading a plan that can sometimes happen is you are just happy to tick it off. It's a goal that, well, I just read, I just read, I just read. Um, What we really want to encourage is as we read the plan together that you think about it. And so there's five questions that we've asked that will just help you interact with what you've read uh, as well. And then finally, by following a plan together as a church, what it enables us to do is you might go out for coffee with somebody that day and say, hey, did you read from Genesis chapter 14 uh, this morning? Did you get what that was about? And you can talk about it because you're on the same page. So uh, these uh, are available. We've got a number of them on the little kiosk right in the back of the auditorium, and, uh, and we'll have more as they run out. But if that's something you'd like to join with us in January the 1st, we'd be happy to have you participate with us. Uh, John chapter 1, and I want to, or John chapter 3, sorry, 1 John chapter 3. We'll get it right. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 to 10. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God, and such as we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him, For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evidence who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Father, come to a section of your word which can create a lot of questions. I thank you, though, that we don't have to try and wrestle them through on our own. You have given us a whole revelation of yourself to look at different aspects of Scripture and help us understand this. You've given us your Spirit that works through us. And I pray that the meditations of my heart this past week and my thoughts will reflect accurately what you want to communicate. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been approaching some familiar texts as we have been coming to Christmas, sort of like a detective approaches a cold case file. And the cold case file that we've pulled off the shelf is Why Was Jesus Born? And so by pulling this cold case file off the shelf, and by saying that, I'm just sort of suggesting that maybe for 11 months we haven't really given a lot of attention or thought to why Jesus was born, and now we're diving into it again. And so we've pulled this cold case file off the shelf, and we've got the evidence before us, and we're trying to see if there's anything we've missed. If there's something that we still need to learn about why Jesus was born, is there some things that are recorded that maybe we've overlooked? And so we've been working our way through that. Why was Jesus born? If you are here two weeks ago, we looked at a passage at the end of John, John chapter 20, which is very clear that, Jesus was born in order to give life, that everyone who believed in him would receive life. And the question was, well, really, what's that talking about? Because we already have physical life, so if we just looked at it and thought, well, Jesus was born to give us physical life, we've missed it. We dig a little bit deeper, and we realize that, no, who is this Jesus that was born? He was Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, so he was God who was born, God is the author of life. God is the giver of life. So everyone who looks to Jesus and trusts in Jesus receives eternal life, spiritual life. And so Christ was born to give us life. A second text that we looked at is from John chapter 18, around verse 36 to 38. And and there we talked about Jesus again being born. And it was a strange piece of evidence from our file because it was actually taken from the end of Jesus' life. In fact, he's about three hours away from being murdered. And uh, the context or the setting is an interrogation room, the Praetorian, with Pilate. And Pilate is questioning Jesus about the accusation of the Jews. The Jews are saying, this man claims to be the king of the Jews. And so that was a pretty significant charge, threat to the Roman Empire. So Pilate had to get to the bottom of that. Really, was Jesus a king? And if he was a king, was he a threat to the Roman Empire? And so they have this discussion together. And near the end of the discussion, as Jesus is talking to Pilate and assuring him that he is a king, but he's no threat to the Roman Empire, Jesus says to him, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, though, I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Again, reminding us that Jesus existed before he came into this world. That Jesus had, uh, was God, and he was the preexistent God, and that preexistent God stepped into this world through Mary's child, Jesus. And so it's for this reason I was born, for this reason I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And we looked at the fact of how we need absolute truth. How humans alone can never agree on what is true. and What is true for you is true for me, but it's not true for me. And it is true for you, and it's confusing. But Jesus comes to reveal to us absolute truth. Truth about God, truth about ourselves, truth about the world in which we live in. And he can do that because he is God. And so we've looked again at why Jesus was born. He was born to bear witness to the truth. So he was born to give life to everyone who believes, and he was born to reveal the truth to everyone who seeks it. So as we turn to this text this morning then, with fresh eyes, we are looking at more reasons why Jesus was born. And the word that is used to describe the birth of Jesus is he appeared. He appeared. That's not common language for talking about a baby. So when we look at Nehemiah this morning, we don't say he appeared. Uh, We say he was born. And so what does it mean when it says that Jesus appeared? How did he appear? Where did he appear from? Did he come out of nowhere? Well, we do know where he came from. We looked at that last week. He came from another world. He came from another realm. He came from a spirituality. He came to earth from heaven, a very real place. And he entered this world as a baby born to Mary. So John is saying that Jesus was born uh, by saying he appeared. Jesus took on flesh. He became visible. And this is amazing. God was made visible Through Mary's child Jesus. Think about that. God was made visible, was manifest through the birth of Jesus. So much that John could say that what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes and what we have observed and what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it. So here John is saying by using that word appearing that Jesus was given flesh. That God was enfleshed in Mary's child. And we think, well, I need to r- wrestle this through a little bit, this appearance of Christ. And by the way, this is a reference to Advent, right? Advent is about the coming of Christ. And so Christ appeared when he was born. But if you were listening when we read verse 3, Christ is going to appear a second time. And when he does, we will see him as he is, and we will transform, be transformed perfectly into his likeness. And what that means is that just as Jesus appeared became visible when he was born to Mary's child, when Jesus comes back, he will come back visibly. When the disciples were on the mountain, as Jesus was getting ready to go back into heaven after his 40 days on the earth after his resurrection, as he ascended into heaven, they watched him physically leave this earth and enter into heaven. And the angel said to them, in the same way you have seen him go, you will see him return. Jesus Christ is going to appear a second time. Visibly, we will see him when he comes to earth again from heaven. And so John uses that word, appearing, to describe the birth of Jesus. Now there's another word that's used a number of times from verse 4 to verse 10. It's a word that we avoid, but it's the word sin and sins. You can find that word 10 times in those verses by my count. So John wants us to understand something about sin as we come to this particular passage. And what he's saying here and what's fascinating me is John is not talking so much as sin as an act. We can find that a lot of different places in the Bible. But what John is referring to here is sin as a character or sin as a disposition against God. For he's saying that um, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What is lawlessness? It's a disposition towards God. It's a disposition to the things that God says and to the things that God commands us. The word law is not actually used in that verse. Rather, the word lawlessness is. And as I said, there's a great many words to describe actual acts of sin in the Bible, but here John wants us to understand sin as a disposition, sin as a a character reality. It's sin as a bent towards God. It's a state of our hearts. And this is the issue. Can we change the disposition of our heart towards God? Can you change that bent towards lawlessness in your heart, in your being, in your DNA towards God. Jeremiah writes, which I think is found in other ways in Scripture, but Jeremiah puts it like this. Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? The answer in our heads is no. He can't change the color of his skin. And then he says... Can the leopard change its spots? No, a leopard can't decide one day, I want to be a spotless leopard. So then he says, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So there's a bent, there's a disposition in the heart of humankind towards God and it's one of lawlessness. That lawlessness is like a DNA it, it, it gets down to the core of who we are and it determines all that we do and all that we say. And what John is saying here is that there's a, a DNA, there's a bent in us that determines whether we are God's children or children of the devil. You, you saw that. It's not me. This is what the passage is saying. Those who are one way are of God and those who are another way are of the devil. Our bent or our disposition to the things of God, reveals which family we belong to. It reveals our family identity. There are only two human families in this world. Only two. We might all have our individual families with our last names, but all of humanity is separated into two families. Only two families. God's God the Father's family. What what does John say about God the Father's family? Well, he says in verse 1 that it's amazing that we should be called God's children. He says, we are God's children now. He says, when he appears, we shall be like Christ, his son. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. So there's a, there's a bent of our heart. He says, the one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. In Christ, there is no sin in him. So Jesus, God's son who was sent here, had a disposition towards obedience. He always obeyed God all the time in every situation, thought, mind, and deed, always his disposition, his bent was to do his father's will. And then in verse 9, everyone who is born of God does not sin. And so the children of God don't sin. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then we have Satan, the father's family. And you say, really? Well, John chapter 8, verse 44 is pretty clear. And there's other verses that we can go to. But it says, you are of your father, the devil. He's speaking to the religious leaders. He's saying, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks, or when when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, his disposition. The disposition of Satan is opposition towards God, it is lawlessness. For he is a liar and a father of lies. Verse uh, 6 of chapter 3 in John Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. They don't know God, they don't know Christ, he's not their father. The one who commits sin, John says, is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The devil's disposition is opposition to God. It's rebellion towards God. It's lawlessness, and so the children of the devil are characterized by sin, which is lawlessness. Opposition to God. So our disposition towards God reveals our family identity. This is really huge, but it's something that John is saying here, and the whole Bible bears this out. Lawlessness or obedience, practicing sin or not practicing sin. This is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. And it's also a hostile, these aren't two families that get along, there's a hostility between them. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you can, talk, you can see that opposition between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. They, are, they will be at odds all throughout human history. And then you come to uh, Matthew chapter 13, and there's this picture of the world and this farmer, which is God that has the world and he's populated, and uh, so an enemy comes in and sows weeds amongst the field. And he's called an enemy that sows weeds trying to destroy the farmer's field. And then Jesus gives the explanation of that. And he says, the enemy is the devil at opposition with the children of God. It's a lot to work through, isn't it? You probably got a lot going on in your heads right now. I think, whoa, baby. Well, don't, don't get off track. Follow me through to the end. And this afternoon, wrestle this through a little bit more. One of the things that matters is our worldview. All of this is part of a worldview. How do you understand the world in which you live? That's what a worldview is. Sometimes you can articulate it, sometimes you can't. But the worldview is just how you think about reality. It's how you explain the phenomena of the world that we live in. It's how you experience the world. It's how you account for that experience. It's how you understand yourself in the world. And one of the pillars of a worldview or how we think about a worldview is, is this world all there is? Or is there more to this world? Is there evidence for a spiritual reality? Is there evidence for something uh, more than meets the eye? One of the things that I remind myself often of, both in just a personal catechism that I have in my own thinking, I was influenced years ago in a book that I read, but it's things are not as they seem, or things are not only as they seem there is a whole lot more going on than meets the eye. That's my worldview. That's one of the things that makes up my worldview, that I realize there is a whole reality, an invisible reality that I can't see, but that impacts me and the world in which I live. Part of that then tells me there is a God. And what do we say together as a church? God is real and that changes everything. That's part of my worldview. God is real, and that changes everything. Part of my worldview also is, though, that the devil is real. And that changes everything. Not in the same way that God changes everything, but the reality of the devil changes how I experience and how I understand the experiences and the realities of the world in which we live in. That's why Andrew read Genesis chapter 3. Because Genesis chapter three is the first introduction to that world view. In some ways, I think Genesis chapter three is one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. To understand Genesis chapter three is to understand the rest of the Bible. Genesis 1 to 11 is primeval history. It's history of the world. It's history of humankind. When we get to Genesis chapter 12, we're talking about the start of redemption history. But Genesis chapter 1 to 11 is primeval history. It's history that applies to every single one of us that describes this created world in which we live, the universe in which we live. And so to understand Genesis chapter 3 is to understand Christmas and why Jesus came into this world. Genesis chapter 3 explains everything about why things are the way that they are, why we are the way that we are, what God is doing in history, and why is he doing it in terms of salvation. Genesis chapter 3 explains the human dilemma. All the problems in the universe have their origin in the defense or the events that are recorded in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam sinned, he passed on his sin and fallenness to every single human being that ever lived or will live because we all come from Adam. He is our representative father. And from him, we inherit death and we inherit sin. And so as we would say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. All that comes back to Genesis chapter three. So having said all of that, How does that now bring us back into 1 John chapter 3? Well, 1 John chapter 3 is the story of Christmas. And it's the story how God began to undo Genesis chapter 3. It's a story about a great deliverance. It's a story about a great deliverer. It's a story about a great destroyer. It's a story about one who makes it possible for us to have a change of heart. To be transferred from one kingdom into another. To be taken out of one family and set into another family. That's the story of Christmas. And so John says in 1 John chapter 3, Christ appeared to take away sins. That's what we are thinking about when we think about this new evidence as we pull this cold case file off the shelf and open it up again and look at this verse. Christ appeared to take away sins. I've already described a little bit of the reality of sins. Sin in itself is something that culture is trying to remove. And it has been trying for years and years, but it, is, it seems like the pace is accelerated. We don't want even the word sin in our human language anymore. We don't even want to use the word evil in our human language any longer. We want to take away the result of sin, which is guilt, and say guilt is not a real legitimate emotion. We want to do everything we can to erase the notion and concept of sin. And it, here John is saying that Jesus appeared to take away sins. We don't like sins because it's a word that has moral implications. It's a word that puts moral categories to my actions and my behaviors. And worst of all, if you follow the word sin to its logical conclusion, it leads you to God, to whom we are accountable. And people hate that accountability. We don't want this God to rule over us, So sin is also a worldview question. Is there such a thing? Do you believe that there is such a thing as sin? Does it matter whether or not you conclude that there is such a reality as sin or not? Well, John says that's the whole purpose for the coming of Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, um, an angel comes to talk to Joseph about Mary. He says, you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. That's uh, the angel telling Joseph the purpose of Jesus is coming into this world. John the Baptist saw Jesus walking one day and he pointed him out to whoever was able to hear him. He says, look, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the logical conclusion is we have sins that need to be taken away. If Jesus came into the world to take away the sins of the world, then the logical conclusion is we have sins that need to be taken away. And if I don't ask it at any time before I end, the next question is, are your sins been, have your sins been dealt with by Jesus? So part of the truth that Jesus has come to this earth to reveal is to talk to us about sin. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. John is concerned about a group of people who aren't taking sin seriously. They're not understanding the connection between lawlessness and God, the relationship between those who practice lawlessness and their relationship with God. He's not taking, they're not taking seriously the disposition of the heart. And so, what John is saying when he says Jesus Christ came into the world to take away sins, what he's talking about is Jesus has come into the world to change my disposition. Because sin is lawlessness. That's what John says here. It's lawlessness. And what is it? Well, how have I described that? Lawlessness is a disposition. It's a characteristic. It's a bent inside of me to to say to God, get lost. I don't want you to rule over my life. I don't believe anything you say applies to me. It's this bent towards that. It's a, a bent towards living life according to my own rules. And Jesus Christ has come into this world to give me a different bent. To take away that sinful bent. And this is why it's important that we understand there's children of God and there's children of the devil. There's only two bents. Ultimately, there's only two bents. Either you have a, 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 a nature that wants to do what God wants you to do or you have a nature that opposes everything God wants you to do. There's there's no there's not a third nature or a fourth nature. There's only two natures. And to live a life of sin reveals your nature and your family identity. You're bent. If you practice sin, your bent is towards opposing God. And it reveals your family identity. So it says sin is lawlessness. It's willful, active disobedience against God. And we see that God is opposed to sin. That's why Jesus appeared. Jesus isn't going to appear to take away something that he's not opposed to. So Jesus came into this world to take away sins. And Jesus' own bent, his own characteristic as a human, but certainly he was also God, was clear that in him there was no sin. Everything Jesus did, everything Jesus thought, everything that uh, Jesus wanted to do was all driven by his desire to do what was pleasing to God. His bent and his disposition was towards doing what God wanted him to do. And so this is why it's so critical to understand why Jesus appeared to take away sins. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, a miracle happens. A miracle beyond description. The Bible variously describes it as being born again. It describes it as you're described as being a new creation. There's something that happens inside of you, which only God can do, and He makes you new. And in making you new, He gives you a new disposition. He, he makes you into the image of his father. And as children of God then, we want to do what pleases our father. We now have a bent and a disposition and a heart that wants to do what pleases our father. And that is one of the things Jesus came into this world to do, to take away sins, to take away that, 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 that lawlessness in us and, and the nature that produces that lawlessness and give us a nature that wants to do what God wants us to do. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to a standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Those who are children of God are slaves of righteousness. Those who are children of the devil are slaves of sin. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What is that newness of life? It's it's, it's, it's a change of heart. It's a change of disposition. It's like the new covenant that Jeremiah uh, 31, 33, I, talk, I think it is there where it says that he will give us a new heart and he will put his law within us. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what he appeared to do. That's why he was born to to give us a new heart. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him. We know that our old self, our old bent, our own old disposition was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We would no longer be controlled by that lawless bent But rather, the one who has died has been set free from sin. We have been set free from lawlessness. Isn't that amazing? Jesus appeared. Jesus was born to take away my sinful bent. Secondly, verse 8 of chapter 3. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Have you ever sat down on Christmas Day and in your own meditations all of a sudden thinking, wow, Jesus was born to destroy the works of the devil. I'm glad if you have. It's just not something that pops in our head, is it? But that's one of the reasons Jesus was born, to destroy the works of the devil. Again, he was made visible. God was made visible through the entrance of Jesus into our world. And Jesus' birth in Bethlehem marked a turning point in the unseen world and the seen world. There was, it, was, it is the most significant turning point in our world since Genesis chapter 3. It marked the beginning of the destruction of the devil's work. The Son of God entered into space and time human history to destroy The works of the devil. Hebrews says, Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Who is the devil? He's variously described in Scripture, I think John pulls a lot of them together in ways that are helpful. The many faces of the devil. He is the dragon, the ancient serpent of Genesis chapter 3, who is the devil or Satan. They're all the same created being. In another place, you read about the cosmic smackdown. I like to call it Revelation chapter 12, where six times it is said that Satan is cast down or thrown down from heaven. It's a beautiful picture about the beginning of the destruction of Satan. And there again, it says, the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down from heaven. So that's the devil. Is the devil real? How do you explain what's going on in our world today? How do you explain the wars and the corruption and the greed, the exploitation of women and children? How do you explain maid? How do you explain abortion? How do you explain Balenciaga's recent ad campaign? How do you explain the satanic reality behind Balenciaga and its fashion house? How do you explain the battles in your own life, your impulses, your inner thoughts, the challenges that you face as you have decisions in front of you? I I recognize that we have three fronts of battle as a Christian. We battle against the flesh, our own flesh. We battle against the world and all its enticements, but we also battle against the devil how do you explain some of those battles that you have if you don't believe in the existence of a devil? I believe the devil is real. And then what are the works of the devil? I really stumbled over this. You know, I did. Because it, you read these passages, and you know, oh, the works of the devil, he came to destroy it. Yeah, good. But do you think through the works of the devil? Like, can you define them? Do you, do you know what they would be? Can you articulate them? Well, I had a lot of time to do it, so I'm not going to ask you to do it in one second here. But I think it's the works of the devil are anything that opposes God. Anything that leads us to want to, to try to, to tempt to, anything in our world which opposes God. It's that disposition of lawlessness. So anything that encourages, entices, tempts, deceives anyone into lawlessness. That's the work of the devil, to pull us out of obedience to God and into antagonism towards God. It says, Satan has been this way from the beginning. I, I think for me, that beginning is, takes us back to Genesis chapter three. Satan was created at some point. He was created perfect. At some point, he chose to disobey God. And when he chose to disobey God, evil came onto the scene. Evil is the absence of perfection. It's a choice. And so when he chose to disobey God, evil entered into the world. He's a murderer. He's a liar. His desire is to pit humanity against God. So Jesus appeared on a rescue mission. That's a wonderful way to look at Christmas, you know, one day to sit around, maybe if you've got some time on your own and think, oh, Father, thank you for sending Jesus to destroy the grip of Satan in my life to destroy his work of opposition towards you. Thank you for the way you are preserving my family. Oh, Lord, preserve my family through Christ who has came to destroy the works of the devil. How did his coming into this world destroy the works of the devil? Well, one, it put boundaries around the devil. That was the beginning of the end of the devil. And you might remember a time when the religious leaders accused Jesus of working by Satan's power. His response to them was, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Until he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus began to destroy the works of the devil when he plundered his house. By binding him. And you read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, how the dragon was seized, the ancient serpent, who was the devil, of Satan. He was bound for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. That was the beginning of the end. He was bound. Then he was cast out of heaven. We already talked about that. You can read that in Revelation chapter 12. That was also an act of the beginning of the end of Satan. He was cast out of heaven, no longer able to accuse us before the throne of God. His power over life and death was taken away, and it was done by Christ being able to give us a new nature. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh—that's what we were. We were dead, but in the appearing of Christ and the destructions of the work of the devil, He made us alive together with Him. What a massive blow to Satan who held us captive! having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He disarmed the devil. He destroyed the works of the devil by pillaging his kingdom. Paul writes in Colossians, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Christ appeared to pillage the kingdom of darkness. And to take us out of darkness and put us into the light. In another place, Paul was sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. When Christ appeared, he broke Satan's grip on you and I. He destroyed his iron clasp of us. We received forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in him. I was given a new family. I was adopted. This is the amazing thing that God took me out of one family, of a family of opposition towards him. And he placed me in a new family. I was adopted. That, and that's why John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called what? Children of God. The way that that is possible is Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him. Praise the Lord. I'm a new creation. So Christ appeared to take away sins, to give us a new bent. Christ appeared to destroy the works of Satan by giving us the ability to refuse his temptations and push to get us to oppose God. It was a rescue mission like none other. It was an adoption plan like none other. Would you be free from your disposition to reject God? Would you be free from your practice of sin, whatever that might be? Would you be free from Satan's grip on you, Satan's hold on you, Satan's DNA in you? Then look to Jesus, God who entered into this world through Mary's child in order to adopt you, to give you a new disposition and to shatter, destroy Satan's hold upon you. All you do is look to Jesus and say, rescue me, and he will rescue you. Father, we thank you for your word today. I'm thankful that the appearing of Christ into this world, the coming of God into this world, the manifestation of God to us through Mary's child, all of a sudden gives new meaning to the worth of our souls. I thank you, Father, that you didn't leave us in our sin. You didn't leave us in our disposition. But you made it possible for all of us to leave the kingdom of darkness and enter into the kingdom of light. To be free from the power of Satan and to find ourselves under the loving rule of God. Father, be with your children, I pray today. Help them rejoice in your goodness to them. And for those, Father, who are unsure, for those maybe who are caught up in the practice of sin and don't see a way out, Father, may they be reminded that one of the reasons that you came into this world was to do just that, to rescue them and to help them break free from their opposition towards you. Oh, Spirit of God, work in lives this morning, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.